I want to start with, uh, you come from a very musical background. Mm -hmm. Your great-grandfather played the trumpet. Yep. His grandfather played yep. the trumpet. Um, why did guitar, it start My there? father played the guitar, and I followed in his footsteps. So you never um, had the uh, inclination to try the trumpet? I did. Uh, my grandfather tried to start me on the trumpet when, right around when I first picked up the guitar. So I could never <coughs> eliminate the Dizzy Gillespie cheeks. Apparently that's a bad technique. You don't want them to blow, blow out like a balloon or blowfish. I could never get it. I could never really get any notes out of it. Um, and my grandfather was a very accomplished trumpet player and started me reading the music and the lines and, and it just I could never, you know, get the positioning and the fingers. And I started playing trumpet. Um, I gave it up pretty quickly. It wasn't, wasn't for me. But the guitar, that was, that was something when I first got the guitar, it was like really, it was, I knew that was what I wanted to do. It was this... Um Maybe, do you remember one or two records that, the, that your parents used to play? Um, oh, I mean, my father used to play me a different record every Saturday. And it was everything, that's why my music taste is so eclectic. I mean, it was everything from a jazz standards record, you know, Glenn Miller, Dizzy Gillespie, Maynard Ferguson, um, Arturo Sandoval, to then the next Saturday could have been Jethro Tull, Thick as a Brick, in its entirety, side A and B, all 37 minutes of it, you know? Um, but truth be told, I mean, it, uh, it was something that was very powerful. Music has always been very powerful in my life, and, and, and I'm a fan. That's the thing about it. I, you know, I'm a fan first, and, and a musician second. I just, I just like music. That's, you know, some, some, some people have that in them, so. Is there maybe one or two records that had a specific... Um... Oh, I mean, a lot of the British blues stuff, I mean... You know, John May on the Blues Breakers, Eric Clapton, John May on the Blues Breakers with Peter Green, um, the Jeff Beck group Truth, that was a big record, Rory Gallagher, Irish Tour 74, Fresh Cream, uh, The Blind Faith, one and only record. Um, well, it's just the one and only, it's not the title of the album, it's Blind Faith. But, um, you know, a lot of the British stuff, you know, um, Free, Tons of Sobs, a guitar player named Paul Kossoff was really big, still a big influence on me. So I was an American kid discovering the British blues before I discovered the American blues. So I thought, I thought a whole lot of love was a Zeppelin tune. I thought, you know, Crossroads was a Cream tune. You know, before you know it, I was introduced to this whole world of American blues artists, and kind of had to go backwards. I learned forwards to to learn backwards. So, do you know why this um, preference for the British blues you, or the Irish blues? When you're where young, where this come from? Yeah, when okay. you're young, and you know. Grew up in a television generation, so all the images come fast. So you develop this. The kids develop now at very natural ADDs, where their attention is diverted. So it's got to be quick and fast, and lots of flashing lights and loud, and keep your attention. And the subtleties of the original recordings are lost on a six or seven-year-old's ear because you're running so fast, and you want you're on to the next cartoon, Scooby-Doo. Next, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter. So. That, that, that's why I really preferred to do, that's why I preferred to listen to the British blues because it was louder and faster and harder, it was more rock and roll. You know, subsequently did I discover B.B. King, subsequently did I discover the great masters, Howlin' Wolf and, you know, Lon, you know, Lonnie Johnson and all those guys. But, but, you know, my original introduction was the British. When you did discover the, the Delta blues and the, the, the more original, Blues players, did a world, a new world, open up for you? 
like a playground? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every time you discover something new, whether it be jazz or blues or, or you know, whatever, rock and roll, your whole life becomes, you know, in, ensconced in this kind of music and in, in, this, in this, this general sense of, of discovery. You know, that's my favorite part of music is not, not listening to it a hundred times over. It's discovering it for the first time. And what happens is you end up chasing it. And when you chase it, that's the, that's the payoff, is when you find something really great that you enjoy, that inspires you. But, but once you've kind of worn that out, you're chasing the next to find the next thing that inspires you. It's an infinite amount of music. I mean, in the last century, there's been an infinite amount of music made. And, and it's, uh, I imagine, constantly developing. Are, are there then things now uh, of modern music that influence you just as much as... as uh... Oh, I mean, I, I, still, I still wake up every morning and... and, and um, want to play the guitar. I still want to play the guitar. I still want to do everything, you know, and I still love it. And I, and I, and I, the day that I don't love it anymore and that it becomes a means to an end, you know, just a paycheck or just, you know, drudgery, then uh, it's not honest anymore and I, I really shouldn't do it anymore. And that's the deal I made with myself is if it becomes like, eh, I just don't want to do this anymore. Then, or not exciting, then I know the fans that come and see me every day and play, they'll, they'll know that too, because it's, we're intimately intertwined, you know, they can tell when I'm having a good night or having fun, and they can certainly tell um, uh, when I'm not, and it's kind of written on my face, you know. So, um, but now the, the good days definitely outweigh the, the bad ones? There's, you know, listen, I wake up every morning, I'm, I'm a paid musician who mm -hmm. plays guitar. I wake up every morning, on my worst day, I thank my lucky stars. I'm a very lucky, fortunate musician who gets to play music for a living. There are so many talented people in this world. There are so many guitar players and singers and songwriters and artists out there who've hustled just as hard, if not harder, who play better, sing better, look better, write better. Um, I'm just fortunate enough that I've been able to figure out a few tunes that have connected with people and they come, you know. So, I, again, on my worst day, it's better than than what I could have ever dreamed of. So, I'm very grateful. To go back to, to when you first discovered the, the blues, the, that kind of music, was it difficult to play a type of music that people of your age weren't necessarily... I've always been kind of a rogue, you know? I don't go where the popular stuff is. I kind of hide in the underground. Um, I, I prefer it that way, to be honest with you. I Why? prefer it. I prefer to be not in the popular music. I don't want to be what's trendy. I don't want to be what's... I don't want to be average. I fear average. I don't fear success. I don't fear failure. I fear average. Somebody, what's the, wor the worst thing you could say to me? It's like, the gig was okay. It was just okay. It wasn't good, wasn't bad. It was okay. Because you're average. So if I'm going to go for something, I'm going to fail in a blaze of glory. Hindenburg or succeed. And no middle ground. And okay. you play for keeps. And that's, that's basically been my, my motto over the God. 25 years I've done this. Um, when you started playing, at what point did your voice factor into the situation? About 18, when I had, had to learn to sing or face a life of hiring singers, um, which being one myself, I wouldn't want to hire me, you know? Um, so I just decided to do it. I said, if I fail, I'll fail miserably. If I, if I win, I win, I'll, I'll at least not have to hire a singer. Because at that point in time, hiring anybody was impossible. It was just financially, you couldn't do it. So, um, but that's been you know I've been singing almost no almost 18 years, 19 years, almost 
getting close to 20 years. But it's, um, it's a uh, daily struggle and it's a daily mindset to, to get your voice set up to play and sing, you know. Um, because it's guitar, I can be ill, the flu, whatever. Just prop me up and I'll play, you know. Um, but singing is predicated in really how you feel and your energy level that particular day. Was it difficult at first then? It's horrible. It's difficult now. <laughs> it's not difficult at first. It's difficult now. I'm not a natural-born singer. There's natural voices like Glenn Hughes. He's a natural voice. Um, Paul Rogers is a natural voice. Robert Plant's a natural voice. B.B. King's a definition of a natural voice. You talk to him and it's like the same voice you hear on the thrill is gone. It's talking right back to you. Me, it's a little bit different. So, um, I have, you know, I had to train myself in singing. I had couple of really good vocal instructors. One guy in particular, Ron Anderson, who works out of Florida and California, really saved my voice about seven or eight years ago because it was really in a bad place. Were you um, worried at first that you might not be about, able to do it? So I'd be a guitar player and somebody else's band. That was my B plan. Okay. So if you worry about not being able to do it, chances are you'll manifest yourself into not being able to do it. If you have this blind belief in oneself, educated or not, chances are you could, you could manifest something into to, to happening. You don't have to have the world's greatest operatic voice to sing and to sell your tunes. You just have to, you have to, you have to earn it and you have to sell it. And it has to be with conviction. So it could sound like anything. Is this uh, also the same um, way you approach uh, your songwriting, your, your inspiration yeah. for, for... Well, all, all or nothing, really. I mean, it's, it's the best songs I write are more of the more personal stuff. And the best songs I write are the more, you know, I guess the, the stuff that isn't... Um, stuff that isn't um, predictable, you know, you know, but has a natural lift in a chorus, so... Is, it, is that an imp important part, to be eclectic, to, to transcend w just one genre, like uh, well, blues so. and some I rock? Mean, and for me it is. I couldn't just make records in one genre. I, couldn't, I don't want to be just the rock guy. I don't want to be just the blues guy. I don't want to be just a, you know, a soul guy or whatever, whatever I'm called. Um, I, I just, the beauty of being a solo artist is that you can wake up one day and go, I want to make this kind of record, and it doesn't make a difference because it's my name on the record. And I'm the only one who has to enjoy it, you know. Um, and that's that's the beauty of being a solo artist because you can paint on any canvas you want, any anything that you feel, you can do. And with a band, the confines of a band, you know, you're in a democracy. Democracy is good as long as one person's in charge. That's the old cliche, especially in a band. So, have you come up with, or have you been inspired by something, things that? You were, yourself were surprised by um, maybe that didn't fit in any genre you had been working in. And I've I've taken some chances. We just did the acoustic thing that that worked out really well. Um, I just did a record with my drummer Tal Bergman called Rock Candy Funk Party. That it's all instrumental, like seven, throwback to the '70s, like Herbie Hancock and some of the fusion stuff of that era that I'm really proud of. Um, I just did a record um, with Beth Hart that we did finish. That's all soul covers and really cool um, horn-driven soul tunes, and she sings, and I just play the guitar. I'm very proud of that as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the beauty of listening to all that music and studying it, it is your youth, you have the toolkit to, to, if you're in these situations, whether you create them or you don't, 
if you're in this situation where you need, need that school or that sound, you know where it comes from organically. You know, and it's not just a point and click and go, well, you know, funky guitar, you know, preset on some computer program. You know, it's more, you want it to be deeper than that, more authentic. You mentioned your acoustic um, DVD uh, that's coming out later mm -hmm. this week or maybe next week. Um, what was it like to play in the Vienna Opera House? Well, it's the second time I've done it. First, the first time we did it was with Black Country Communion, which okay. inexplicably, I don't know how we got booked to do that, that gig, which I have no idea how. Um, second time we had the gig booked as part of the Jazz Fest, and we had the gig booked before we knew what we were going to do with it. I didn't want to bring my electric solo band in there because it's the same set of equations. You're talking about an operatic house that has this rich history in acoustic classical music, and we're forcing electric music in there. And it's okay, but it, it works, but it's not working great. Um, so that's when the idea of putting together the band, acoustic band, all acoustic, nothing plugged in, doing it like bluegrass style, but only with world musicians, you know, a nickel harp, a, you know, Irish fiddle, and, you know, some, you know, crazy cats on percussion and, and piano, you know, and that's, that's, how it all, that's how it all started. And, and what a great band. I mean, Mutz Vester, Jerry O'Connor, you know, Arlen Shirebombs, who, who's in the solo band now, and uh, Lenny Castro, who's a bona fide legend. I mean, it's just a killer group, and Kevin Shirley put it together, and, and we took 20 tunes and had three days to rehearse, and off we were. Was it a daunting process to prepare for it? It was. It was a lot. It's a lot to prepare for. Um, it's a lot to prepare for in the sense that you're, you're completely switching what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, I'm a guitar guy. I'm a soloist. Okay, so you're taking that out of the equation. That's a big part of the show. You don't realize how much I solo until you have to sing 20 songs a night without a big solo to break, you know, to break, to give your voice a break. I mean, that's crazy. You know, that was the most shocking thing to find out about yourself. Like, oh, wow, I do solo. I'm just overindulgent, you know, because singing the songs in a row, it becomes very apparent that, that uh, the solos, you know, put a big part of it. So taking that out of the equation, you know, um, it was good and it was good and, and it was, it, it was challenging and fun and I think it made me a better musician, which is, that's the best thing you can ever say about any project. Does it make you a better musician? Is it something you uh, take with you to your uh, next projects? The, the yeah, reliance on yeah, solos, you do. maybe. You do. I mean, everything's interrelated. So. Okay. Um, well, you mentioned the different influences uh, that you took with you—the Irish um, music, uh, yeah. Swedish influences. Was it difficult to um, transform your songs where where it be com compatible? We just basically used the studio arrangements, and. Let the band find the part, you know? There's some melodies and there's some hooks that people needed to come and play. But after that, you're just letting them feel it the way they feel it. You know, it'd be, it'd be crazy to kind of go in there and dictate what every instrument plays. I'm not an expert. I don't, I've, never, I've never even seen a nickel harp up close until I met Mutz. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a fiddle player. I'm not an iron, you know? So you don't want to micromanage world musicians, world-class musicians, because you end up going, you might as well just learn the thing and play it yourself, and you get this kind of very sterilized, get this very sterilized thing, you know, where if you just kind of let them find it, and everybody kind of feels it their own way, in their own pocket, which is, that's the magic. 
Um, Kevin Shirley, again, uh, produced mm -hmm. the album. Um, how important is he for, for your sound, not only on that record, but the other records as well? I mean, how do you quantify the contributions of a guy like, you know, Kevin Shirley, who basically pulled me out of the blues clubs. You know, we had made a few records, and probably six records, and, and said, you know, kid, we got to do something different with the blues. You know, you can't just be a gunslinger, three verses, and a solo guy, you know. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's plenty of them and better ones at it than you are. We need songs. And he was the first guy to really stress the song over the substance. And that was, that was the beginning of the, the newer stuff and the beginning of the road to selling out two nights at the Heineken Music Hall was the fact that we were able to get the substance with the playing in a good song. And that's, that's when things start to connect for you. It's like, is when you take the good playing or average playing, depending on what you read on the internet, um, and you put it on to good songs. And that's, that's, uh, that, that's people, it's a, it starts to appeal to a wider group of people. And that's, that's where Kevin Shirley's really masterful is, is finding a way to, to, uh, to, to appeal to a wider group. Um, when he first, uh, well, maybe when he first approached you to, to go in that, maybe a slightly different direction. Mm -hmm. Was it difficult for you to, to make that transition or was it something you were kind of searching for yourself? Um, it wasn't, it was something I was looking for but I didn't know how to find, you know? I mean, you can only do it so much yourself. I mean, I, I don't like, you know, that's why, there's only a few, I mean like Jimmy Page is a good artist who produced records. You know, he produced all those Zeppelin records and he had a vision for it all. I am not that kind of guy. I, mean, I don't have that kind of, I can't see the rest of the record before it's made. Where a guy like Kevin, he sees the whole final project finished, on the shelf, done. He hears it before we even record the first note. So he knows where we have to start from point A and to get to where we need to be. So that's, a, that's what a producer is. Everybody, anybody can buy a Pro Tools rig, a couple of microphones, set up the studio in your house and call themselves a producer. Then there's producers. There's guys like Tom Dow. There's guys like... like um, you know, Mutt Lang, Kevin Shirley, guys like that. Those are producers, best musician in the room, and he doesn't play, or he plays, but he's not playing, you know? That's the key, is for a producer, you have to be the best musician in the room and keep focus on what everybody's doing. If the hi-hat's clashing with the snare or the bass is not rubbing, is rubbing with the kick drum or I'm doing something whack, you gotta know how to like, it doesn't feel right, so try this, try this, and you just go in there and you pinpoint the problem. Is, is that the way you approach um, writing a record as well? You, you mentioned you don't really... Um, do you go into it with a certain idea in, no, in mind? Just, and you know, good songs come when they come, you know, and you just, you just keep churning away. You write ten bad ones to get one good one. Going back to the, um, maybe the last record, Driving Towards Daylight, you see a lot of influences from... from Delta Blues in Robert Johnson, uh, Stone Zimmer Passway, right. uh, Howlin' Wolf, but also uh, a song very, very reminiscent maybe of Gary Moore. Um, how do you combine, combine those influences in, well, in I mean, forming you can, you can basically get a glimpse of my iPod just by listening to the record. You can, you, the, the influences are pretty, pretty obvious, mm -hmm. you know, the Gary Moore, the Peter Green, the, you know, Robert Johnson who I share a birthday with. Um, okay. But that's just, that's... You know, that's every blues player, you know, they are influenced. You, you hear the Albert King and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Mm -hmm. You hear the, the Hendrix and Robin Trower. You know, you just, you just do. 
is it something you readily accept or is it also something you, you can't, well, you have to, but is it also something um, you're trying to yeah, but what maybe I'm saying break is away from at, at, at times? Any guitar player who would look in this camera and say that everything I play on this instrument is a completely original thought and it's mine and mine only is either so deluded in their own right. bullshit or they're clueless. Because at the end of the day, everybody gets stuff from other people. It's how you absorb those influences and, and bring it down. I don't have any ego about who writes the songs. I don't have any ego about going, hey, that, sound, that song sounded like Gary, Gary Moore. Guess what? It does. Because guess what? I'm a huge fan of Gary Moore. You know, it goes back to what I was saying in the beginning. It, I'm a fan first. And you hear it on the records. You know, I'm, a, I'm an interpreter. That's my job. I'm an interpreter. I'm not an innovator. I'm an interpreter. And that's, that's, that's you have to accept that in, in your, in, at 35 years old, I'm accepting of, of the kind of musician I am. I'm an interpreter. And more so than a guy who puts, you know, quill to parchment and, and, you know, comes up with these totally original sounding things off the top of his head. Just, just is what it is. Fair enough. Um, I have to talk about Black uh, Country Communion for a bit. I've already talked about that too much. Too much? Too much. It's like enough. It's, I, I, I've already talked about it 50 million times from here to Sunday. It's enough. I, it's, I, 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 let, me, let me exit the band in peace. And, let, and leave the band in peace. You know what I mean? It, who cares? If we, why keep the conversation going? Well, the only thing I... It's a fair question. You're a journalist, but I'm saying I don't want to keep the conversation going. I, don't, I, I just don't want to talk about it. Whatever has been said is said. I love Glenn. I love Jason. I love Derek. They're all my still my friends. Nobody hates each other. It's fine, you know. But it is what it is. Let me exit the band in peace. Okay, I respect. Fair that. enough. Dislocated boy, you write down. Um, oh, maybe I can't remember. I'm alone, severely broken. Um, well, isn't that the concept of the blues, isn't it? Right. Well, that, that's what, what my um, question would be: is where do you draw your blues from? Where, 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 how does it manifest in Sometimes you? it's playing on your emotions. Sometimes it's playing subconsciously on your past experiences that you don't even know. You know, you, know, you didn't even know that you were writing about some experience and all of a sudden you read it and you go, wow, that kind of reminds me. You know, and sometimes you're just, you know, trying to be pretentious and sound like, you know, bluesy and authentic, you know. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, the, the you know, the, one of my favorite lyricists is Chris Whitley. And one of my, another one of my favorite lyricists is Tom Waits. And it's like, they can drag the blues from the bottoms, to quote my friend Jeff Jones. But it's, it, it, it's a guttural response to words. And you, can, you know, it's like, you know, when you listen to Tom Waits sing, you hear it, you know, and you want to see him in a smoky bar off of Hollywood Boulevard you know, with a glass of bourbon at three, three o'clock in the afternoon, writing down words or watching nefarious characters all around. It puts you in that place, you know? And a job as a lyricist and a job as a, a blues singer is to convey your emotions to the audience. So when you get those kind of, those, those, those kind of you know, uh, phrases or words or adjectives or, you know, um, there's a song called Slow Train that I do, and and I use the word cooling board, and 
uh, one of my friends asked me, like, what's a cooling bar? I don't get what you're talking about. It's an old 30s term from when they, were, where they put a dead body, like in a morgue. But it's called, they call it a cooling bar. And to me, it just was like such a, just a, like, talk about cutting like a hot knife through butter. That's a heavy term, you know? But if you use those kind of images, the song seems to get deeper and have more of a, a weight to it than if it was just, you know, oh, you know, my she's so sitting at little honey sitting at the bar, you know, staring at me from afar. I mean, okay, great, that's been done. But, you know, there's got to be a little something deeper than that, you know. Take the time. You know? Right. If you got the pen, take the time. If you don't have the pen, still take the time. Do you miss, um, you sold out the Heineken musical um, two nights in a row. Do you miss those uh, smoky bars? You know, I mean, we, any musician who says that he prefers to, you know, lug his own gear upstairs, um, set it up, you know, beg to get paid, if you get paid, drag it all in, um, pack it back up in the van, um, pile six people into a six-person van, sleep with your arm like this, drive yourself, um, check into a crappy hotel, um, and do that 13 nights in a row. Or if they go, would you like to sell out two nights of the Heineken music? I don't know many musicians that would, would trade one for the other. I spend 20 years of my life slugging it out. And, and, and there's days where you miss the immediacy and the reaction of like, people like, right in your face. And then you realize, you know, some of the tours we did over here originally were endurance tests. I mean, it almost broke me to the point where I'm like, wow, I, I've never been this tired, this exhausted, this fed up in my life, you know. But there was always an inkling of hope. There's always the, the goal. Where do you want to be? You know, you want to get your music out to as many people as you possibly can. And that's really the, the, that's really the, the mission of it. It's, you want to get your music out to as many people as you possibly can. And, and that's, you know, the original tension when you start out playing your guitars in your room as a kid, you want to just play guitar because you love the music. And you want to sound like Jimmy Page or Eric Clapton. The minute you put yourself out there as a recording artist or as an artist in the public eye, no matter if you start by drawing five people, now you're out there. The goal it's different than the kid in the room who just wants to sound like Jimmy Page or Eric Clapton. It becomes like, okay, if we're going to do this and exude all this energy and go be away from home, then let's have it mean something and hopefully people respond to your conviction. Does that also, in the same sense, uh, add a lot of pressure to it? Well, in the sense that when we started, I started with four people, three band, one guy to drive, and now Right now we're about 30, 31 people, two buses, two trucks, and a huge overhead every week. And people think every, every, uh, every euro they pay for the ticket goes in my pocket, it doesn't. It, you know, like all those lights, like all that nice sound, you know, everything costs money. And it's, you know, it's a, a more of a business now than it used to be, but the original intention is the same. I walk out there just as excited every night to play as I did 25 years ago. And, in, in, when the day comes, that I'm not, and it's the day I need to step away and say, you know, because it has to at least, the connection between yourself and the fans can't change. That connection can't change. Everything else around you can change. I mean, people you travel with, where you stay, how you roll, whatever, how many guitars you own, it matters not. 
at the end of the day, if the connection between you and the fan is exactly the same as it was when it first started, then you're doing it right way. You know, because it, if you don't do it the right way, you know, they'll know and they won't come. So. On that note, I think that's a great note to end there you this go. interview. Thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you very it, dude. Much. Sorry, sorry I dodged the BCC stuff.